0: This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Aranda people. We pay our deepest respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We all misbehave sometimes Wanna change the world Indulge in something bad Hello and welcome to Bad Behaviour Podcast. I'm Rosalind. And I'm Nicola. Yay! Hi everybody! Nicola, how are you going? How is everything? Oh thank you for checking in, my dear friend. <laughs> I'm I'm going really good. I'm having a, a lovely Sunday. It's really sunny where I am. Um really Rub delightful. I'm oh, I'm sorry. I do feel bad saying that, but I also, my vitamin D levels are so high that I'm on cloud nine at the moment. Um, So I've just been sitting outside reading all day, which has been really good. Books have been bringing me a lot of joy lately. I'm on a reading streak of, you know, when you just read excellent book after excellent book that's kind of where I'm at right now in my life I'll give a couple of my recommendations right now while I'm on my little soapbox um so recent faves have included Milk Fed by Melissa Broder it is so gay So sexy, so good. I would definitely recommend that. Flames by Robbie Arnott. If you're into magic realism and beautiful Australiana scenery, that was an excellent one that I just read. And I also bought into all the TikTok goodness and read Red, White and Royal Blue, which is a gay novel that dreams are made of, and I would definitely recommend that as well. So lots of queerness, lots of fun, Just living my best life and I would ask you what books you're reading but I know you (laughs) mostly read drowry fan fiction which for those who don't know it's Draco (laughs) and Harry (laughs) fanfics. Oh my god, airing out my dirty laundry. Okay, you know what? It's not even a guilty pleasure. (laughs) I stand by it and you've let me loose now. I've got to tell the people why. So, okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Rosalind, and I'm <laughs> addicted to dryery fanfiction. But the thing is, okay, let me start with this. Fanfiction mm. is fantastic because you have all these amazing writers who are practicing their art, you know, honing their craft, and they take these beautiful, amazing worlds. Let's just pretend J.K. Rowling is not <laughs> linked to this. I love it. Okay, because you have these amazing writers and they're taking these worlds and then they're putting their own spin on well-known characters, characters you love. So you go into these worlds knowing the characters and they go, what if this random thing happened instead of that? What would happen to these characters? How do we stay true to the characters but live it out in a completely different way? I love that. My favourite thing in the world is anti-heroes and redemption and figuring out why people believe things and why they change. I'm obsessed with cults. And so Drarry is so beautiful to me because you have a character that is known for sort of innate goodness but really struggles with that because really he's just a jock who's been thrown into and kind of manipulated and bred for dying for everybody and being a bit of a Jesus, that's fucked up. And then you've got Draco, who's like basically been brainwashed into an allegory for racism, like pure-bloodedness, who then has to grow and change and learn that he's wrong and that everything he's ever based any of his beliefs on is flawed and has to come to terms with the horrible things that he's done and his family has done and his legacy in life. And then you see that interaction. That is fascinating to me. It's pulling at my smart meter for all like the enemies to lovers content. I don't think you should be ashamed of reading the amount of drari. I'm not ashamed. (laughs) As evidenced by the fact we're putting this on the internet. (laughs) Because Rosalind will literally read like novels worth of drari on a week to week basis. Like it is... There is, I'll be honest, if you're looking to enter into that, be careful. Check the warnings, check the ratings. If you're not looking for smut, it may find you. So, so just be careful out there. I have been asking you to send me one of your favorites for so long. Like I want to dip my toe in the drarry field. I'm so nervous to send you one because I love them so much that I feel. And also some of the ones that I want to send you... A very character study ones rather than really raunchy ones. And I feel like you just want raunchy. I do want raunchy. I've been getting really into romance books lately. Like they have been my jam and I've always loved reading. I've always read a lot and I never really, like I did that classic thing that I feel like a lot of young girls do where they start to um, read things based on like, proving their intelligence instead of actually wanting to read that so for years I would read these like really dry um boring books and I feel like recently I've just gotten back into like the romance genre the thriller genre like all this stuff that is purely for my enjoyment and it is oh it's so satisfying like there is nothing more brilliant to me than the feeling of when you are hungrily consuming a book and you cannot put it down. It is so satisfying. And if Drarry gives you that, then (laughs) Drarry gives you that, you know? Well, here's the thing too. I grew up loving science fiction and fantasy novels. Probably one of my favorite novels is June. Um, And I mean, highly problematic book now. There's a lot of sort of stuff in there that I don't agree with. Um, But I love that book. And I loved fantasy novels that were all like, it's set in medieval times, so we can't write strong women because it's medieval, but dragons magic is fine. You know, it was back (laughs) back when I was first discovering those books, it was not queer, or at least the ones that were queer, like it was few and far between. And the female characters were not like kick-ass characters all the time. There was a lot of kind of, you know, the woman is the prize at the end kind of novels. And so fan fiction is this amazing community of people who are exploring queer identities and putting it forward as, you know, the reason you're here is for the world and the characters their identity, their sexuality, that's that's almost a secondary thing that we're adding as 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 cushioning or or as something to talk about or to explore, but it's not the turning point of the novel almost. It's it's like it's just an addition to it. And I love that because I got so frustrated growing up with not having books that I really related to. I wanted strong female characters and I wanted way more representation and I wanted trans characters. I wanted queer characters of every, you know, color, creed, religion, everything. And it wasn't just like the story of coming out and having a homophobic reaction. And being ostracized for that, yeah. That was the only story that there was. And I was like, but that wasn't necessarily my experience. And so I'm not interested in reading that over and over. I want a coving of age story where being gay doesn't matter. Can we have that? Oh, absolutely. I mean queer queer literature and queer books. Like I mostly read books that have queer relationships in them. And it is it is, you know, a point of power too to be able to like the the things that I'm consuming and and the characters that I'm reading about, like, they reflect m- me and they reflect my community as well and like it's like it's taking it's taking up space in a way that's really powerful. So I completely agree with that. I think reading novels with really incredible queer characters is some of the best healing work that you can do as a queer person. It just feels so beautiful and satisfying. And it's getting better too. I really think that there's been so much Like published recently, really the last 10 years I've seen a big upshoot and I'm so excited by that. And in fact, today we are talking to an author who has recently released a book called Nothing But My Body. We're talking to Tilly Lawless, who is an amazing queer woman, uh, a sex worker, a writer, a fantastic Writer at that, and I'm so excited to dive in to this novel and some of the themes and to chat to her about that.
1: So, um, my name is Tilly Lawless, and I'm a full-service sex worker. I've been doing sex work for over eight years now, mainly in Sydney, and I live in Sydney. Um, I also have done a fair bit of activism I suppose it would be called around like sex worker rights um, and some other issues and I'm also a writer.
0: So you wrote a book called Nothing But My Buddy which is going to be released on August 3rd and we got sent an advance copy to read and it was absolutely wonderful. The book feels very intimate. It is a sort of it's auto literary fiction is that right that's the i mean i don't really i to be honest like i was referring
1: to it as semi-autobiographical fiction but apparently that's kind of like an outdated term now and when i took it to um an agent and then it went to publishers like they were all referring to it as both auto fiction and literary fiction neither mm-hmm. of which terms i'd ever heard before Um, so i'm not i'm not necessarily the best person to um talk about that but for yeah it is it is drawn upon my life and a lot of it is based on my life but for me it's not i mean it's not nonfiction because not all of it's true you know Mm -hmm. and the things that are true are often um put together in different timelines and um collated in different ways and like the characters are amalgamations of various people and not any one person and so it isn't as much as it's drawn from reality it's not a real story you know
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so the narrator is never named do do you think that it's you're sort of the narrator but the experiences that you go through are reflections rather than actually true recollection it's more like this sort of thing happened
1: well, I mean, didn't, I didn't name her because I felt I wanted the reader to be completely immersed in her thoughts mm. and feel like they were her in that moment. And so the reason I didn't give a name was because I felt having a name would make you realize that it wasn't you weren't in your own mind, you know, um, and in not naming her, I realized maybe I made a mistake because the fact that I didn't name her means people assume it was me, you know. Yeah. Um, but for me, I never saw myself as the narrator. Like she's some things she thinks are not things I think. like, well, some points of um uh, i don't I don't know, like it, it, I was still setting myself inside like someone else's mind. but, yeah, so I don't see myself as a narrator, but yeah, she was just mainly unnamed as sort of yeah a technical device that maybe hasn't quite worked.
0: No, when you say because it makes it feel like you, I I definitely resonate with that. I feel like the fact that they didn't have a name meant I was a lot more immersed in it. I think it worked. Oh, amazing. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then the only name we had was Maddie, which was her sex work name. Work name. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And work names are all just, I mean, obviously they're all fake anyway. So I didn't feel like that disrupted anything. Yeah.
0: No, absolutely. Um what were some of the themes that you were most excited to cover when you started writing? Were mm-hmm. there a few things that you're like I want this point to come across?
1: Yeah, well so when I set out writing it what I intended to do was to show the fluctuations of mental health um and the way in which I think often we look at mental health as something that's like linear like you're you're bad and then you're like your mental health is bad and then you're sort of like going through this progression of getting it better you know Mm. whereas in reality it's something that goes up and down and i also don't think I think sometimes we need to stop striving. Like I know for a long time I looked at my mental health as something that needed to be fixed. And it was like a really important learning curve for me to be like, this isn't something that I can completely fix. Like it's only something that I can learn to like live with and also like take the good when it comes and realize that when the bad comes, it won't be forever. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was what I was intending in writing it was just, and also to show the way in which like when things are happening around you, it impacts like the way in which you think and like the pace of your thoughts and stuff. So that was the overall intent. And then another thing that was really important to me was I wanted to deal with sex work in a way that didn't make sex work the um, complete focus of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I wanted sex work to be the backdrop of the book in the same way that like Sydney is the backdrop of the book or like Berlin or like the other locations. Like I wanted it to be part of the atmosphere but not, B, the obsession because I think so much of you know media that um, deals with sex work it's like very othering and it was also just like obsessed with the kind of like facts around sex work and like I wanted to show that you could use sex work as one layer of something but um still encompass like many other things if that makes sense
0: yeah absolutely yeah. I feel like that's um something that I really resonate with when I read uh books that do that with queerness or being gay they're like this is just one facet rather than your entire character which unfortunately a lot of media does so it makes total sense that they would do the same for sex work yeah
1: it always has to be the problem topic yeah I don't want it to be the problem topic like it just is you know it just
0: is yeah (laughs) absolutely no I love that the book touches on, on friendship and long-distance connections during COVID. Um, mm. People have obviously been very isolated throughout this pandemic now.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, again, Melbourne's yeah. back in lockdown,
0: <laughs> so Sydney. Um, how did that affect you through your writing process, just that isolation? Oh, definitely the um, – I mean,
1: I love my friends anyway. Like, I've always – I'm always pretty open about how um, important friendships are to me and I'm not like shy about like expressing my feelings for my friends. Um, But definitely I miss so many friends so acutely in lockdown that that really uh, bled into the writing that I was doing. Um, which is why I like finish like at the end like I say something like this is a love letter to friendship because to me at the this whole like the whole experience of writing the book and like thinking about like processing my feelings about things through the character that I was writing um what I ultimately came down to at the end of it was that just like I love my friends and I'm so grateful for them and like that probably sounds like pretty like naff or trite or something but like um yeah, ultimately, like I think one of the few things we have in this world is connection, and I've been really lucky to connect with a lot of people in like the form of friendships. So, yeah, definitely being being alone and missing them influenced
0: influenced it a lot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, it's been um, it's been interesting, hasn't it? With COVID, it's like all of these connections you have. The this everyone talks about sort of the economic problems of COVID, and then you. You realize that the social problems are so hard to navigate individually. Like, totally. And seen like,
1: families, friends, it's. Yeah. yeah. And I think also, like, I think in the lockdown last year, a lot of us became hyper aware of, you know, because obviously digital and online spaces are important, but I think a lot of us became really aware of the importance of physical spaces and how online spaces can't actually replicate that mm-hmm. and never will. And, um, that especially I think in queer spaces, that became really pertinent to me and a lot of like queer friends. And so that was like another thing I wanted to celebrate in writing it was, you know, these queer spaces, um, which is why I speak a lot about like, you know, clubbing or whatever, because like clubs traditionally have been a place where queer people have gathered. So yeah, it was it was definitely a morning of what couldn't happen in that
0: time. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about your your personal story as well outside of the book mm. um because the book does explore as you said sort of importance of community and queer spaces and friendships um and i'd loved if you could speak a bit on how you've personally been affected by having an LGBTIQA plus community and why it's important
1: look i i'm not close with my extended family i never have been um I'm completely estranged from one side of my family, including my mum. I haven't spoken to her in over a decade. Um, And so for me, I think I really did. And then the other side of my family, a lot of them are quite Christian, don't like the fact I'm gay, definitely don't like the fact I'm a sex worker. Um, I've had a lot of conflict with them as well. So for me, I definitely found a solace and community in the queer community in Sydney like a support network that I didn't have in family. Yeah, I feel like, I honestly feel like that's what it comes down to. Like actually, I mean, but I'm sure there are people with like completely functional relationships with extended family who still find the community around them really important. I think also it's been because I didn't have that connection to my extended family, um, a lot of, you know, in having an extended family that you're close to, people often have a lot of really important Um, intergenerational relationships and I didn't really have that and I found the straight community doesn't really socialise so intergenerationally, you know what I mean? Like my straight Mm -hmm. friends tend to mix more with people their own age and I think the thing I really liked about the queer community was the fact that I was mixing with a lot of people who were older than me and they kind of provided the maybe like modelling, I don't want to say role models because like I don't really like the idea of modelling yourself of anyone else's behaviour but they provided maybe like a mentorship that i didn't have otherwise um, yeah i think the intergenerational thing of the queer community is something that i really really treasure and i definitely was lacking in in my personal life like in terms of family yeah
0: yeah absolutely wow that's i never thought of that before but that's completely true the yeah, you know like well,
1: yeah. Yeah, well like when you don't have you know, you know, you don't speak to your aunts or uncles or like, you know, I, as I said I don't speak to my mom, like um there were people of my aunts and uncles and mom's age group that I became mm-hmm. friends with, you know? Yeah. And I think that's also to be honest why I became, um, why I've also really enjoyed like brothel work and massage parlor work is also because of like um, the intergenerationalness of it. You know, like I was often working with like a lot of women older than me, and they're the, the ones who I tended to become really close with.
0: I loved the answer that Tilly gave me when I asked her about the LGBTIQA plus community and how it affected her. I hadn't ever thought about multi-generational friendships and um, how important that is for people. And it was just a really beautiful answer, I think, and framed it really well for me. I think that the LGBT plus community is a phrase that we throw around a lot. And we go, how important is it to have that community behind you? And yet that's such a personal question and it means something completely different to every person that you throw it to. And there's this assumption that every queer person has one and an assumption that every queer person has one that is tolerant and accepting and open and warm and loving. And that's not necessarily true for every person on this planet who identifies as queer. Absolutely not. Uh, But it's got me reflecting on my own journey to self-acceptance and, you know, being a young person who was queer growing up and and what it was like to discover those communities and those pockets of, of people and how important the LGBT community was for me personally So I was thinking about that and reflecting on my youth. Yeah, I wanted to know if you have any stories like that of of times when it was, you know, really impactful to have, like what LGBT community means to you, basically. Mm, That's such a big question. I really love that question, too, because I think it's, it's, um... You know, one of my favourite things to talk about is reflecting on friendship and the the different friends that you have and like the ways that you've been able to to have relationships with different people. And um, I think for me, a lot of my uh, really close friends are queer, and it's that community has come quite naturally. Like I don't in my You know i have a couple of memories of being in spaces where i haven't felt super welcome in my queer identity of course but there's for the most part it's um i i think for me it truly kind of blossomed when i moved over to new york city for college like that i just remember there being so many queer people so many non-binary people so many trans people everyone was like kind of coming into themselves, being away from like the places that they grew up in and um, everyone was super keen to connect and make friends as well. So it was just like this really supercharged type of experience where people were open. And of course there was like lots of drugs and alcohol too, which always helps when you're making friends and you're young and nervous. So yeah, I think you know where I sit now like I'm so grateful for all my queer friends and I mean you're a big part of that like can we just mention that for for Roz and I like we went to I mean I'm sure people are sick of hearing our origin story at this point but we were in (laughs) middle school together and we never really um like we I remember one of the first like vaguely queer thing that we used to do is we used to be well we still are we're obsessed with gay cinema like we used to I remember going over to Rosa's house and we'd like watch all these gay movies together and we just loved them and we still have our favorites now not a lot of self awareness about why we love <laughs> yeah. them necessarily and I don't even remember there being like I don't know how we got to that point where we were both both like oh you like films with gay people in it oh so do I I just remember like <laughs> most of my you know later years of my teens were spent at your house like upstairs with in front of the tv watching like all of these different gay films and like being so enchanted by them and I mean that's a community in it in itself isn't it like us two just going about the world with with our little friendship because yeah you are such a huge part of my journey as a queer woman it's so interchangeable to me i can't separate the two of them you know absolutely no i think having i mean having a a best friend when you're that age who is also queer is very very helpful i i think about i mean imagine that you were straight i think it would be a lot harder for me to have talked through all of those things and felt like you really understood them even if you had been empathetic and open, it's it's different when you um, you feel that, that you're experiencing the same thing. But it's interesting because I, I think you were the, one of the people who, I mean, you were my queer community for a long time. And I felt very disconnected from the idea of an LGBT community right up through uni, I think. I, obviously, I had friends who were queer, but I didn't feel like it was you know, this sort of little queer community I was a part of that I was connected to and that I felt super accepted in. I very much felt like a lot of my friends at at university were straight and I didn't feel like I was, uh, I don't even know how to put it, almost like I wasn't a performing queer, if that makes sense. Like I wasn't actively, openly queer in a lot of spaces because I didn't actively come out all the time and because I wasn't in a queer space if I didn't actively come out I was perceived as straight and so I really did feel very disconnected from that and it took me discovering uh the queer side of YouTube that was really helpful that was definitely a community for me because it was people talking about things I questioned and experimenting with ideas and concepts that made me feel normal and uh, a part of you know a world that had lots of different identities and that that was exciting rather than scary Um, and more recently and I will mention it again and I know you'll laugh Nikki but TikTok is really great for that too I think that There's been a lot of conversations recently about how toxic it can be, and I think that's very true. Any social media has the propensity to go down that line, especially with things like diet culture and and things like that. But in terms of the queer community, I'm very firmly on gay TikTok, and there is a lot of love and acceptance. And the ideas that I've come across on that platform, you know, I've come across people who... I never would have in any other yeah. social media platform. It, in in a way, you know, um, it's so accessible. And that's been really wonderful. I think the idea of queerness online is so interesting. Like, I I didn't. I don't think I've ever. Um, my relationship with a lot of online platforms is like super fraught, and I, you know, don't feels very. Um, I don't feel super excited about, um, existing in those spaces very often. Like it's very rare that I would go on to Instagram or TikTok and be like, yes, this is, this is what I need right now. You know, like it's more like a mindless thing that I do, but I can, you know, for me, I, and we, this is, we always speak about like representation and what you consume and like even with when we were talking about books at the beginning of this episode, like it is pretty powerful to be able to like curate that in those spaces and like really be intentional about like making sure you're seeing queer love and making sure you're seeing queer art and like, you know, different and different, you know, trans love and and different people in different bodies and all the, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's, um, even if you didn't ever feel like you had that community in person, the fact that you've been able to, you know, have it online is is really special. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point when you think about people who, you know, queer people who are not in safe spaces. So if they are living in countries where it is illegal or Uh, They are living in a conservative family or, you know, a religious family where it's not acceptable. Um, If they're living somewhere where they have a threat of violence, of, you know, gay conversion, which we've talked about on this podcast before, many, many different things, um, or even just a situation where they have no sort of queer people around them at all and so it's just isolated even if they're being accepted by their family isolation in that way can be extremely difficult um and very lonely and very hard to come to terms with and so being online and having online spaces you know it's sort of what Tilly was saying she was living in a in a rural area and and that was really a saving grace for her and I think it is for a lot of people it's very accessible as soon as you have an internet connection you will probably be able to find queer forums uh youtubers where whatever it is and and that can be really important um and I think that's really beautiful and wonderful but also obviously stay safe <laughs> uh in places where censorship is um is still paramount but yeah no I I don't know I just think this is such a fascinating idea I don't think we examine the concept of the LGBT community very much. In media, it's just a phrase that you use to denote every single queer person on the planet. And in stories, we, we sort of go, you know, people have queer friends and, and a community and they're accepted because they're, they're confident and so they must. And I don't think it's a given always. And I think, yeah, it's nice to think about and reflect on. Um, If any listeners are out there who don't feel like they have a community yet and they're still searching for one, I'd love it if you reached out to us. I'm really happy to chat. Um, Also, I'm sure we'll put some resources for different places you can go on our show notes. Uh, And if you also have reflections of the LGBT community and and ways it's helped you or or how you found it or if you have anything unusual that happened I'd also love to hear that so please email us at info at badbehaviorpodcast.com or shoot us a dm on instagram I would love yeah I just want to say quickly too I think the feeling of um really craving that in your life but not knowing where to start or not feeling like it's ever possible for you like is so and I Rose and I would have so many conversations about this we still do like we still dream yeah we still dream of our lesbian girl gang yeah absolutely I mean I'm still on various journeys and it's important for me to have people who are willing to sit in uncertainty with me but you know I'm still looking for <laughs> Still looking for new friends all the time and all of that. Like, I'm still in that place sometimes, especially with lockdown. Oh, my God. It's hugely uh, literally isolating because you have to isolate so yeah well dm us if it's you want It's not an easy time to be building a community i'll give you yeah. that send us a dm if you want to be rosa's friend guys like please oh my god that makes you sound so desperate <laughs> i promise i have I friends can, i can vouch for her she's really nice she's s- <laughs> such a lovely girl but yeah just would oh my god yeah message Nicola would appreciate for some a detailed <laughs> (laughs) would appreciate some people to share the emotional load if you know what i mean wow (laughs) wow that was so mean well nicola's gonna need a new friend (laughs) after she loses me with comments like okay so dm me to be my friend is now the conclusion (laughs) that we're ending with and on that note let's go back to tilly for more of her wonderful wisdoms Did you know that the average person uses over 11,000 menstrual disposable products in their lifetime? And it's estimated that over 100 billion menstrual disposables end up in landfill annually. That's why we are so excited to collaborate with Body, the new way to period. I personally love Body products and I'm so excited to work with them. Modibody products help me feel my best when I'm on my period and I highly recommend them to anyone looking to explore a more sustainable and comfortable way to have your period. They are also committed to creating a positive impact as a brand. This includes helping to end period poverty and supporting health education programs that normalise and open up conversations around our bodies, which is something we're also trying to do here on Bad Behaviour. Check out modibody.com for more details. Modibody is the new way to period. We've talked before on this podcast about growing up queer in kind of conservative areas. Um, mm. Both my co-host and I did. <laughs> oh, where um, are you would from? You... Uh, we're from Geelong, but it, oh, at yeah, the time yeah. it was, was a little bit more um, conservative than it is now. Yeah, totally. Uh, certainly. So, yeah, I'd love if you could speak on what it's like growing up queer in sort of a rural area. I mean...
1: Same as the area you're from, my Bellinger now is like so much more accepting of that stuff. But when I grew up in Bellinger and I went to school in Coffs, and Coffs definitely is at the time was hugely homophobic, and still is fairly homophobic. There was one lesbian in the whole town. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, everyone knew who that woman was. The lesbian. (laughs) Yeah, the lesbian. It's like middle-aged, like, butch lesbian, and that was her, yeah, that was the lesbian. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Capital L. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Fully. And um, it was just so isolating, you know? Like, I also lived 15 Ks out of town on a property, and there was no public transport. You know, It wasn't like we had trains or like buses. There was the one school bus that only went on school days, you know? Um, so I was also isolated, not just in terms of being queer, but just isolated from other people my age. You know, like if I wanted to hang out with someone, I had to walk 3Ks to a friend's house. And so for me, the internet very much became my refuge at that age. Like I was, you know, on Tumblr and DeviantArt and Post Secret Forum and always on a Meagle and basically like. <laughs> um, a lot of my early sexual experiences were online. You know, like the first time I had any sexual experience really was like um, having cyber online as like a twelve year old. So, and it was actually I was role. It was on a horse role play forum. So I was role playing as a horse, but I was a gay male horse, and this other girl who was sixteen was also role playing as a gay male horse, and we had gay male anal sex as horses, and that was my first (laughs) kind of properly sexual experience so like i don't know for me um yeah for me my i I guess i kind of you know speaking about the importance (laughs) of like physical and online spaces like for me obviously online spaces were so vital as a teenager because it was all i had in terms of queer community and then getting to sydney i finally had these physical spaces and i that's why i don't want to i don't want to like say that like I, will, I mean, I personally prefer physical spaces. Like, you know, I don't use online queer spaces so much now that I do have physical ones. Um, but in the absence of physical ones, those online ones are just like, phew. I mean, I, in some ways, I'm, I have a relationship with the internet that I feel like a lot of my friends who grew up in city areas don't have. Well, especially like straight friends who grew up in like metropolitan areas don't have because like they did, they could just go hang out with friends, and so I do like that I was immersed in kind of like a little bit of like an undecided internet culture before the internet kind of got ruined by, um, you know, corporations and censorship, which is like currently happening, you know, like I was, I was like in all those places where they said teenagers shouldn't go because they'd be talking to older people, you know, and (laughs) I really value
0: those experiences. How did you first get into or discover sex work? What drew you to, to it?
1: Um, So I moved to Sydney when I was 19 and was going to uni and was on, you know, like I was living out of home. So I was on whatever you call it. What's it called? Oz study, Um, you know, Centrelink for students. Um, But it was only just enough to cover my rent. I got by the first year by like a little bit of babysitting, cash in hand and like working in a bar, cash in hand. And then um, I was like, you know, I need something that's more financially lucrative. And so I was like, sex work or drug dealing? Because they were the two things that, you know, kind of stereotypically came to mind, as things that are meant to be financially lucrative. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'll be a good drug dealer. I'm not very discreet. So I spoke to a friend of mine and was like, I've been thinking of starting sex work. And she was like, me too. Um, except I probably called her prostitution then, I can't remember. Um, and then we just Googled it and we started an escort agency together when I was 20. Yeah. So it was very much out of financial need and to be honest, a lot of naivety. Like I had no, I didn't even, I thought sex work was illegal at the time. You know, I had no idea of anything, like, um, if I had any, you know, rights or like you know um if the, where was the best place to work or what was the best kind of sex work to do i just went straight into escorting at a escort agency and you know the first client i slept with was only the second man i'd ever fucked and i told him that and he didn't believe me he thought it was a sales pitch <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah and so then i've just gone with it from there but like i done. I was only with an escort agency for two months and then I went into massage parlor work and then full service massage parlor work and then brothels and then private escorting and then I, you know, I've done all sorts of different
0: things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a a line in your book that really fascinated me and I'd love if you could tell me if you feel the same as your narrator. (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) It was sexual attraction does not equal sexual compatibility because I think Personally, as a queer person, that was really fascinating to me because I was like, "Oh, that feels very true." (laughs) You know that line Um, actually doesn't come from me. It came a
1: friend said it said it to me years ago, and I kind of remember which friend it was. Otherwise, I would credit them. But it was in conversation, and we were talking about something, and they said that, and I was like, "Wow, that is so simple and so true." Um, Ah, great. Yeah. Yeah. So So you had the same reaction I had. Oh yeah, (laughs) I was like, "Oh my god!" It was just like put so simply, like um so true like so often the time mm-hmm. where i'm really 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 attracted to someone in my personal life and then we end up having sex and there's just like no vibe and you know and that's the shocking thing with clients is often i'm repulsed and then we do have good sex like um yeah unfortunately oh god if sexual attraction like equaled sexual compatibility every time you had sex it would be a sure thing you know like you would know that it was going to be mm-hmm. good sex based yep. on being attracted to the person but it's not like that at all um yeah so someone said that to me many many years ago and i wish i could remember who it was <laughs>
0: no i it's i feel like i need it on a (laughs) t-shirt um i'd like to talk a little bit i saw your ted talk um and you mentioned that you would you have done some activism around sex work before um so i'd love to ask what some assumptions people have about sex work oh god so
1: many assumptions um people assume that you are a drug addict or that you've been abused as a child or that you're a nymphomaniac or that you're like incapable of having like genuine connections with people or on the other side you also have people assuming that you're you know making huge amounts of money that you're maybe not yeah there are so many or that you know you're a great businesswoman or something, which I'm definitely not, you know, like there there are good and bad assumptions about sex workers. Like, I mean, the reality Mm -hmm. is that sex workers, like people on any other job are completely different. We're all individuals and um, there's no, there's not a certain kind of person that becomes a sex worker, you know, like it's generally, it's generally like economic need or like circumstance or whatever that gets people into sex work. Um, You can't actually make any assumptions about someone in the industry because it doesn't attract certain kinds of people.
0: Yeah, we've come across this a lot. We've talked about, you know, in previous episodes we've done fat phobia and addiction and mental health and there are stigmas around all of those different topics. And every time we come back to it, it's just so dehumanising. So people just go, this is a stereotype and they're not people. And then as soon as you put the human element back in, you go, oh, well... those assumptions weren't real because we forgot that they were people. Totally, exactly. <laughs> if you could say sort of to the, the people who are out there who don't know a lot about sex work or maybe are only just realising that they have a lot of assumptions and stigma around it, is there something that you would say or want to say to those people?
1: Realising that you have assumptions that aren't necessarily true is often what sets the ball rolling to undoing those assumptions. But I guess same as with any marginalised people that people have stereotypes about, I would say just like actually listen to sex workers and consume the culture that we create. Um, Yeah, I think it's really as simple as that in terms of undoing assumptions, because as you said, once you realize that people are people rather than stereotypes, it it kind of does away with all that,
0: you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just have one more question and oh, yeah, that went so I know fast. how to answer this because um, <laughs> I loved your book. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> my question is, why should people read Nothing But My Buddy? Oh, I... Just... I'm putting you on the spot. You have to...
1: <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't think people should do anything. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, from a political perspective, like, I like that I've written a book about sex work that doesn't fall into the genre that sex work is put in again and again, which is memoir. So I do like that I've done a novel that deals with sex work. Um, And that kind of sets it apart from like some other things. So that might be something that's compelling for people to read. but I don't, I don't see why there's any reason why anyone should do anything. You know? Like, <laughs> if, if you're a reader and you like to read, like you're welcome to read it. Like, if even if you're not a reader, you might enjoy it because maybe it's salacious enough. Um, but I, you know, I'm just, I'm just grateful if people read it and like it.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bad Behavior. It was fantastic to have you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you guys being here. And also wanted to let you all know that <gasps> we got nominated for a Frankie Good Stuff Award. Yeah. So, which is so oh exciting. My gosh. I have adored Frankie my whole life so this is a dream come true and in the meantime uh we'd love to hear from you guys so you can find us on Instagram at bad behavior podcast on Twitter at bad behavior cast or email us on badbehaviorpodcast.com. thank you to the lovely Tilly for spending time to chat to us and thank you for Nicola for chatting to me and I we would really recommend her book please You're go buy Oh, thank you to you too. Thank you to Cheji for editing. Oh my God. This is well, you terrible. started the thank yous. we got to thank everybody. <laughs> I was just trying to thank our guest. Nothing but my buddy, Tilly Lawless. Exceptional. It's a good one. Bye. The executive producer for this episode was Rosalind Ankatel. Bad Behaviour is produced by Rosalind Ankatel, Nicola Cranage and Cheji Magembe. Hosted by Rosalind Angatel and Nicola Cranage. Editing and sound design by Namcheje Magembe. Our logo was designed by Bonnie Eichelberger. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad behavior.